Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either... You are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Let me tell you how I am in misery this morning. Over the weekend, which I spent most of it working, I took Saturday off. We'll talk about that in a minute. I have some big projects coming up this week, especially Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm recording this on Tuesday morning because that's kind of how busy I am right now. Um, I got some good news. I went to the grocery store, which I'd been avoiding for about a week. I told you that um, mass murder, I was going to call it a situation, but it's, it's more than that. The mass murder at the grocery store in Buffalo like really affected me. My refrigerator was barren and I just refused to go to the grocery store. I was like, every time I thought about going, I was like, yeah, I'm good and ordered food. But ordering food every day is counterproductive to being in the gym every day. And I was like, I need this scale to move because like I said, I got stuff coming up. So I finally went to the grocery store and because I had something to celebrate, I got a bottle of Prosecco. So I get the bottle of Prosecco, come home, stick it in the freezer because I was like, I want to enjoy it sooner than later. Got distracted reading Viola Davis's book all day. I finally got the book. Been talking about this book for weeks now and and I'm going to do a quick review of it in a second. But got caught up reading the book because it's, it's, it's a lot but it's hard to put down. So read the book all day. I mean, like literally the entire thing. It's only 300 pages. And then after got distracted doing something else. And then I went to bed. So I'm like snuggled in my bed. I had just drifted off to sleep. And then there is this wild commotion. There's this big like pop bang. And then there's like the ice makes all this noise. I think somebody's coming into my apartment. I completely freak out. And then I realize like, oh shit, the champagne. So the bottle of champagne burst all in my freezer and I end up cleaning out the whole freezer, which is full of glass and champagne slush, which I scooped up some of it with a spoon and ate it. It was wonderful. Not the part with the glass. Champagne slush is, it's like froze. It's amazing. But I had to clean up the freezer in the middle of the night. I still ain't found the cork. I've checked the freezer three times. I still don't know where the cork is. It's in there somewhere. And the freezer ain't but so big, but it's in there somewhere. But it scared the living shit out of me. So cleaned everything up, got back into bed. All is right with the world. This morning, I'm walking around my apartment and I forget to put on my flip-flops. I have a small piece of glass. It's like annoying. It's not harmful. It's not bleeding. But I have a small piece of glass in my foot that like I can feel it. Again, it doesn't hurt, but I can feel it when I walk. And I was like, what the fuck? And I can't get it out. I'm going to have to like tweeze this thing out like it's a splinter from back in the day. Like ain't nobody got time for that shit. So now I'm sitting here with my left foot like up in tiptoe to avoid applying any pressure to my heel. This is my life right now. I'm like, I got shit to do today, including this podcast that I was supposed to do yesterday. Womp womp. But no, I have a big project this week. I'm doing an event for HBO. I'm interviewing the cast of We Own This City, which is a new, new-ish. Actually, the finale airs on Monday, but it's a six-part limited series on HBO about some corruption 
I was going to say the corruption, but it's been more than one incident. But but about some corruption in the Baltimore Police Department. On it, on the surface, it's about road cops, but it's also about systemic dysfunction, systemic corruption. I don't even know if dysfunction and corruption fully cover it. It's it's not like a one off. It's like a culture of it. But there were a couple officers who were especially terrible. I mean, like robbing citizens, selling drugs beating the shit out of people. This one guy had like 50 complaints. The city had paid out like at least $250,000 to settle civil suits. I mean, it was really, really bad. But he was on the force for years and everybody knew he was a dirty cop. There's also like a list of officers who had been caught lying in court. And I believe on more than one occasion, but they were banned from testifying in court because they were proven to be untrustworthy but they were still allowed to police. I'm like, the court has banned you because you are untrustworthy and unreliable, and yet you're still allowed to be on the streets? This one guy was under suspicion of committing such a terrible offense that they put him on, not administrative leave, they put him on suspension for two years with pay. I was like, you gave that man a vacation. He ain't got to go to work for two years, but still gets his check. That's called vacation. That's called good living. I'm doing nothing but earning a wage. Is that job still available? I would like that job. Let me get paid podcast wages and ain't got to do no podcast twice a week. Girl, living. You see my ass in more than Ghana. I be in Ghana, Indonesia, Bora Bora. You would see my ass everywhere. Literally my ass. I'd be in a bathing suit on a beach. You would see my ass. See some ass everywhere. So um, I'm, I'm interviewing some members of the cast and production tomorrow in LA. I would invite you, but it's an invite-only event. It's the executive producer and I think four cast members, the director, and then three members of the production team. And also I mentioned that this show, and it's based on a true story, takes place in Baltimore. The show is created by the same people that did The Wire. David Simon and George Pelicanos. I think George Pelicanos, I'm like kind of obsessed with him. George Pelicanos is to The Wire what Walter Mosley is to Snowfall. Technically, George Pelicanos had the job first because The Wire, somebody pointed out to me the other day that The Wire went off, or at least like, you know, from the original airing for 15 years. And I was like, really? I would have told you it hasn't been more than five years. But lo and behold, this is an aside, we're going to get to the point. I was watching the episodes the other day and several people who were in the wire. I mean, mean, when I say several, I mean like 12 who were in the wire are also in this show. One of them being Jamie Hector who played Marlo. We see him a lot. He's a regularly working actor. He plays a police detective. He plays essentially like a a not drunk version of bunk in this series. Um, But there's an interaction between, and I've watched the series two times, but there's an interaction between Marlo and this cop, nice looking guy. I noticed he was attractive the first time I watched it. And the second time I watched, I was doing something else. And I was like listening to the pace of the show. That's the screenwriting thing. I just listen to TV shows for the dialogue sometimes. And I recognized the tone and cadence of the voice. And it took me a minute to place it. And I was like, Dookie? Daquan? Looked up. I was like, oh my God, the really attractive guy on my screen who was, you know, and it looked like he was in his early 30s was Dookie. Remember the little boy with the afro from the fourth season of The Wire, the one that was about the kids, the one who was homeless, 
The last time we saw him, he was getting high down to the stables. Broke my heart. He grew up to be a gorgeous young man. He's got to be like 30, 31 now. And I was like, oh, Dookie. I didn't realize how attached I was to the characters in The Wire until I sat there and almost cried that the actor, the actor on The Wire who, had, who was getting paid for a job, a good actor, because in my head, I really believed this child was, was on heroin, homeless, and living in the stables. That's the emotional reaction I had to seeing him. And I was like, oh my God, it's Dookie. He turned out fine. He turned out okay. Really nice looking guy. I posted a picture of him in my stories and everybody was like, that's Dookie? Who knew? Who knew? But he's in it. Um, Like I said, Marlo's in it. Poop from The Wire, he's in it. Marla Daniels, remember she was um, the wife of the detective. I think she was running for city council. She's in it. I didn't recognize her first either. I recognized her voice. A couple of the police officers are in it. I had this whole list. Donut. Remember the little boy? He was cute as hell. He had cornrows. Really, really cute kid. He used to steal all the cars and go joyriding. He's in it. There's a ton of people in it. Um, But I say all that to say that the show films in Baltimore and they like to obviously bring in actors that they've worked with before. Oh, an important one. He's He's a really big deal in this show. He was in The Wire. I don't remember him from The Wire. I remember him as Rolla on Power. And then he was also Bobby Rush, who's a friend of my dad. I used to know his daughter back in the day, which is like drifted in different directions. Really sweet woman. Congressman Bobby Rush, who before he was a congressman, was um, an active and well-known Black Panther. But the actor who played both Bobby Rush and Rolla is also in this story. Remember I was talking about the corrupt cop who, um, who got suspended for two years? Rolla plays him. I do not remember him from The Wire. Apparently, he used to work with um, Marlo. Oh, and Savino is in this too. I didn't recognize Savino yet. But like I said, there's a ton of people. That's not the point. The point is the show films in the community. They went back and found a lot of actors who worked on The Wire. And then they also work in the community and hire people from the community to work on the show in front of the camera and behind the camera. So we're having a conversation as much about the show as in working with the community for the show and creating a model for how shows that film on location, how they can incorporate the community. Like don't show up and just, you know, exploit the community for background, but how can you incorporate folks? So that's what I've been researching. So I've been watching the show. I've watched every episode two or three times at this point. And then also listening to the podcast. The podcast is as good as the show. One of the writers from the show, Black Dude, who was handpicked by David Simon to work on the show, he does the podcast and he's really, really good. What is his name? It's D. He's also a New York Times bestseller. I was like, how, how do I not know you? We own this city podcast. D. Watkins, that's his name. I really enjoy the podcast. Like I said, as much as the show. Like, I didn't order books for the show. I'm obsessed with David Simon and George Pelicanos. Even if I wasn't doing this HBO event, I would be having the same level of obsession that I'm experiencing right now. I do this with all of their projects. I did this with The Corner. I did this with Treme. There was another one. What was the other one? Was it The Deuce? Actually, I didn't really get into The Deuce like that. But The Corner and Treme, like, I was like, I need to know every single thing about this project. But I say all that to say, I've been immersed in preparing for this panel because it's eight people and it's in front of like a bunch of HBO executives. So I was like, let me not fuck this up. What else is on the table? Oh, I told you I read the Viola book. You know, I was obsessed 
with getting my hands on that book. Like it came out right after I went to Ghana and I wasn't able to get an advanced copy. I like called over to the publisher and they were like, oh, we can send one. But I was getting on a plane the next day and I was like, ah, it's fine. Totally didn't mind supporting the Viola. It's a, it's a, it's a, how do I want to say this? It's a read. It's not a bad read. I thought it was a well-written book. My, you can hear it in my voice, right? My hesitation concern isn't in how it's written. It might be in the stories that are told and how it was edited. I was excited for this book to come out. I think I mentioned it like several months ago that, you know, Viola Davis has this book coming out. And like, I really enjoy Viola Davis, even despite, you know, the misstep. And we talked about this 50 million times, so I'm not going to belabor it with, with the Michelle, with her playing Michelle Obama. Leave it at that. Um, but I still very much like deeply admire her as an actress. And I said prior, even when we were talking about the Michelle Obama situation, I was like, I appreciate that, you know, she has good sense. And when she gets in front of a microphone, she uses it for a purpose and doesn't say dumb shit. So I was really excited to read her book. I'd watched the Oprah interview because we talked about that. That was on Netflix. I enjoyed that. Viola's book is 300 pages long. Literally, the first 100 pages are about her upbringing. I want to say everything up until she graduates high school. There were some good times. From what she's describing, it was few and far between. On the Oprah interview, she discussed growing up in extreme poverty. She talked about sexual abuse in her home. She talked about physical abuse. So I knew going into the book that those were going to be topics that were explored. I didn't realize that it was going to go into extensive, nearly traumatizing detail for 100 pages. She mentioned wetting the bed until she was 14, the rats in her apartment, and the way her father used to beat her mother like 50 times. At least 20 stories about her father beating her mother. And when I say beat her mother, I mean like hit her with wooden objects, purposefully, intentionally trying to break her mother's legs or hitting her so hard that she fell on the floor and or her face split open. Her mother having to run out of the house because she truly believed her husband was trying to kill her and then always came back because she was raised that you keep your family together. I was like, in this life or the next, we could both die today, but you ain't just gonna kill me. So there's that. The rats were pervasive in her home. She mentioned those rats Literally 50 times. I didn't go through and count. At least 50 times she mentioned those rats. The sexual abuse. A lot of it was random. Like there's, there's one incident she describes. The culture of it. Like old men being like, oh, I'll give you 25 cents. You know, if you give me a kiss. There's an incident with one of her sisters at a grocery store. This man would go up and down the aisles, see little girls and feel them up. But it happens to her sister and then her mother hears about it and makes like a big, big stink about it, like as she should. And the owner of the store where the little girl got felt up and he's trying to calm the mother down. And he was like, hey, bring it down to a 10. Like he didn't single her out. He does that to everyone. Nigga, what? She also talks about incidents of incest. She and all her sisters were abused by a family member and Viola just sort of like rolls it out like very casually like oh yeah like you know 
and my brother. Wait, what? What? But literally, like, the first 100 pages are are told in, in vivid and excruciating detail about all the abuse that she grew up with. And it got to the point where it was, I felt uncomfortable. Remember that movie that Lena Waithe did about the black family? And she was only the executive producer. She didn't write it, but she was attached to the project. And she was probably the most famous person on the project. It came out on Amazon. Them, I think it was called. But a black family in Chicago, I believe, moves to the white suburbs. And it was a horror film. But the white folks tortured the complete fuck out of that black family. There was one particular scene that was horrifically tragic and a lot of people lashed onto and was like, you've crossed from horror into trauma porn to the point that it's like you just are torturing these black people and triggering your audience just for the sake of a reaction. I kind of got that feeling somewhere around like page 50 reading Viola's book. She just kept going on and on and on and on. And I was like, yes, like this is your story and you deserve to tell it. I kind of felt like you're not just telling me for the sake of informing me. You're telling me to trigger something in me. But I was like, did a black person edit this? I don't think you have to tell every single incident that happened to you or even the majority of them to make the point that like there was abuse in my home and this shaped my childhood, this shaped my perspective. But it was just like story after story after story. And I was like, are you trying to like titillate me with this? Like, are you trying to present like this is a part of black life? Like, I don't, I don't know. I've just got very, very uncomfortable reading it. Once I got through the first 100 pages and she goes, you know, out into the world, she goes to undergrad and then she gets into Juilliard and then, you know, she's a working actress. Then it gets more, I don't want to say better. It's more of what I was expecting from her book. And all of her story is still colored with the trauma that she grew up in. She's very clear that she's the family member that got out. She has several brothers and sisters. I think one or two of the other ones were able to like make something of themselves as well. But, but her parents were still living essentially in poverty. And some of her other family members also ne- didn't have a lot of money, needed a lot of help, and they relied on her. She talks about like, you know, being away at college and then like her mother and sisters show up and was like, yeah, like dad beat mommy again and we didn't have anywhere else to go. So now we're popping up here at your dorm. She was like, you know, yeah, like physically I got out of the environment, but my family didn't. So emotionally and financially, I'm still tied. So she talks about like the struggle being the one that made it out. But do you really get out if everyone that you love and care about is still in? So, yeah, so she's got stories of being this working actress, making decent money and having her own place. But because she still had to care for her family and look out for her family. And then she would you know, go back to her parents' house and literally sleep on the floor. That house didn't have rats, I hope. But yeah, but she just talks about like going through life and the triggers that she would experience from how she grew up and how it all stays with her. So she does talk at one point about going to therapy, which I was like, thank you, God. Therapy is a process. It's not like you go to therapy and then you're you're immediately healed and then everything is fine and dandy after that. But reading her book, I was like, more therapy, more, just have more. You just may need to stay in therapy. I'm not making any judgments, but I was like, it it read as... um, to be frank, it read as emotionally vomit and, and, and unhealed. I was like, she might have wanted to wait another like five years, 10 years before she wrote this book. Like we get 100 pages about trauma porn, abuse, 
And then she just sort of glosses over like, yeah, and I got an Oscar. I don't even think she specifically says it. Like she talks about her role in Fences and then says, yeah, and for that, I want an Oscar and blah, blah, blah. But she doesn't really talk about like in any depth, like being nominated, going to the Oscars, like the feeling of being acknowledged. All the things that you would expect from a Hollywood memoir are are not there. It's really, it's not a tragedy because she didn't succumb to it. She seems to have built herself a very nice life. But I was like, you deserve it, sis. The shit you've been through, you deserve it. You know what it reminded me of? Do you remember this book back in the day called Random Family? But this reporter followed this family for like 15, 20 years. And she followed a couple generations of the family. It was a Puerto Rican family living in the Bronx. She was talking about the effect of poverty. It infects every aspect of your life. Like every decision you make is related to your resources or lack thereof. But that's what Viola Davis's book reminded me of. It was, it was a singular black woman's story, story about growing up in poverty. But the way she talked about it very much reminded me of Random Family. If you've never read Random Family, please do. I read it when it first came out. That book's got to be minimum 15 years old, probably closer to 20. It kind of reads as trauma porny too. That book will break your heart. But it gave me a whole different perspective on life. And it made me a way more compassionate person for people and their decisions. If you've never read that book, I actually highly recommend it. The Viola book, you, you got to be in a, in a mood for. I was just really excited about the book. So I was like, well, let me commit and dig in. And I just kept thinking that like, okay, like this going to end now. We're going to move on. Nope, we're not going to move on. We're going to get another story about your mama getting her head bashed in. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. What else did I do this weekend? I saw the finale for This Is Us. It comes on tonight. I was able to get my hands on a screener. I will give you no reviews. Nothing. I just saw it. And you should watch it. And it comes on tonight. They did something weird to Randall's makeup. And I thought that last week. It's like they made Randall like too dark or too old or something. Kevin is looking very like sexy zaddy. And Randall, Sterling K. Brown, I think is a very attractive man. But older Randall, they're not doing right by him. They Something weird. And then I was trying to think. And I was like, do black people get darker as they get older? Like, is this a thing? I know there are folks who do heavy drugs. They can alter your complexion. Or maybe certain diseases, like your skin can appear darker um, because of the medicines you're taking or the the disease that's that's affecting your body. But I was like, did did we talk about Randall having that? Why is Randall so dark? And then I was like, maybe I'm just overthinking it and like they fucked up the makeup. Maybe it's just that simple. They like they used makeup that was too dark. Better to go too dark than too light because then you look ashy. But then he just also like it's just not like the right color. I was like, it's the lighting. But I saw it and you should watch it. And we'll talk about it tomorrow on Instagram. Also, I'm shocked that we got this far in the episode. I meant to mention this at the very top. I have put my entire website, or the merchandise for Ratchet and Respectable and Don't Waste Your Pretty. The entire thing is on sale, up to 50% off. Everything must go. I, it's, a, it's a moving sale. The countdown for my move to Ghana has begun and I'm not taking anything that's still in my warehouse with me to Ghana. I'm clearing out the whole thing. So the merch is on sale up to 50% off. I mean, everything. We sold out the last of the feminist hips and, and ratchet hips yesterday. I think there's only two black and gold tees left. There's some don't waste your pretty tees. Interested men act interested. Cut the check. The gold and white ratchet and respectable tees. The green and white ratchet and respectable tees. All of that is there. The sweatshirts I've knocked down. And I mean all of them. I think they're between 20 and 40 now. I mean, I put everything on sale. The coffee mugs for Don't Waste Your Pretty, I think those are $10 now. 
This is the big sale. Go on and get you some merch. So it's at DemetriaLLucas.com. So also over the weekend, because I told you I had a bunch of stuff to do, I finalized my logistics for Ghana. I know the date that I'm leaving. I have a flight. Um, I'm leaving from D.C., but it's all coming together slowly but surely. And I've got a bunch of stuff to do and places to visit and people to see. My cousin is down in Mexico. Um, She refuses to come back to L.A. So she was like, I have to see you before you go. And I was like, well, I'm in L.A. And so she was like, and planes go to Mexico. So I'm trying to get down to Mexico to see her. I've got ABFF next month in Miami. I may or may not go to Essence Festival. I only go down to Essence when I have to work, but I haven't been booked yet. Um, So I don't know if I'm going. I want to go. I don't know how I'm going to fit this in. Moving all my stuff cross country to store in D.C., but we're going to figure it out one way or another. We always do. So there's a lot of stuff on the table that I just need to, you know, put into place. But I got the ticket. And the apartment is paid for already. So it's happening. I'm excited. I'm also nervous as shit. But it's happening. There was this really great documentary on Ghana that aired on a documentary show. Let's call it a show. But it aired on CNN, part of the original programming. What is this guy's name? Somebody told me about it on Twitter. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known about it. Carlton McCoy. He is a sommelier. He is based out of D.C. I had never heard his name before. But somebody tagged me in a tweet giving me a heads up that this show was coming out on Sunday night. But Carlton McCoy is light skin brother from D.C. At some point in the documentary, he talks about people, he says, quote, who are black like me, who go to Ghana, you know, seeking their ancestral roots. And I was like, bro, I'm glad you said something because I ain't know. D.C. has a lot of light skinned Negroes that technically could pass. It's, it's a thing. It's kind of like New Orleans in that way. But I was like, bro, I'm glad you said something because I didn't know. I was like, I wasn't picking up the bass in your voice. I really didn't know. Could have gone either way. But black man who it seems he in no way is trying to be Anthony Bourdain. God, I miss that man. I miss Anthony Bourdain like I fucking knew him. <sighs> Whole nother story. But this guy, Carlton, specifically for this episode, because I ain't watched none of his other shows yet. But for this one... It's a very similar tone and pacing that Bourdain used to do. But he goes into Ghana and he's eating lots of eating. But I was like, sir, like you're a wine expert. Like, where's all the wine? But he goes and he has meals with different people and he talks about culture and politics and art and all of those things. So it's very Bourdainish in that way. He just doesn't have Bourdain's personality. And it's a new show for him. So I feel like he needs to, you know, just warm up and get a little comfy. If you go back and watch early videos of Anthony Bourdain, he is not the Bourdain that we came to to know and love in later years. Like he was just awkward. He hadn't found his pacing yet of Carlton. So I'm not going to make too many criticisms of Carlton. It's a new show. He's finding himself, but he's covering good stuff. And his approach to Ghana was that in 10 years, it will be the creative capital of the world. Why Ghana is working so well and why it's like, you know, sort of this model country in West Africa. And I say model country also, I just, I say model country and also just need to acknowledge like Ghana is not perfect. Ghana has its problems. If you're following Ghana, particularly Accra in the news right now, they are in the middle of rainy season and they do not have the best sewer infrastructure. And there's a ton of flooding. You know how sometimes you see videos of New York City after a heavy rain and there's like flooding all in the streets and flooding all in the subways. 
That's what some parts of Accra look like right now. Like it's crazy. There are parts of Accra that are underwater. We've also seen flooding like this in the States in Houston. We've seen it in Miami. So I say that to say that, you know, the city of Accra is flooding like some major American cities. So he talks about, um, you know, democracy and fair elections in Ghana have led to political stability. He talks about, um, you know, the history of Ghana, the first West African nation to get free from colonialism, 1957. He talks about the creativity. He talks about the black professionals. They just refer to themselves as professionals because everybody's black. But he talks a lot about how an informal tradition in Ghana was that is that you send your kids abroad to be educated and to have a better, to have quote unquote, a better life. But a lot of those children are coming back as adults because Ghana is a better option for them. They're like, I've gone out in the world, I've looked around, I've seen, and I want to, I want to be home and I want to bring the best of what I've seen out in the world to my home. Talks about journalism in Ghana. They do have freedom of speech. He talked to a bunch of, I wouldn't say rogue journalists. I would just say journalists who get up in everybody's business and not tabloids. I mean, like political type business, it's like exposing corruption. And you can imagine they're not everybody's favorite. So they're like a, they're like a secret society of journalists. But it was a really good special. And Davida and I were watching it separate but together. We were on a chat and we thought it was really well done. And I specifically mentioned Davida because I like Ghana as a guest. But, you know, Davida's from Ghana, so she has a different perspective. But she thought it was well done as well. Also, he explored a lot of different places in Ghana. Like I, when I go, I hang out in Accra, but it's also like going to New York and only seeing New York City. There's so much more to Ghana than just the capital city. So I was like, like look at this land. I'm turning into an old black person from the South specifically. Old black people love to talk about the beauty of some land. It's beautiful land. So I was like, yeah, there's some places in Ghana, a bunch of places that I need to go see. I can't wait to move. I'm just ready for, for what's next. I had the same feeling when I was in New York and thinking about moving to D.C. and then in D.C. thinking about moving to L.A. Like there's just been a mind shift. It's like I'm ready for the next big thing. Speaking of Ghana, Davida and I also had like a wonderful conversation and we talked about it before. And we talked about it before the documentary came out. We actually talked about it several times. But on Sunday, we actually like decided like, let's pull the trigger on this. Every time I go to Ghana and I'm posting hashtag see some Ghana, hashtag see some world, people are like, you should do a Ghana trip. You should do a Ghana trip. You should do a Ghana trip. And Davida was like, yo, we should just do a Ghana trip. So we decided we were going to do like a, a, a Demi and Davida do Ghana type trip. So the trips that I'm usually on, and I specifically use that language because those are her trips. I'm just often there. Sometimes I host them. But we're doing a collab trip. So a curated version of Ghana. So if the Ghana that I share when I'm traveling that you've seen in the hashtags over the last few years, that version of the trip. So I'm curating my favorite places, my favorite things to do in Ghana. And we're putting a trip together. And it's going to happen around Thanksgiving of this year. So stay tuned for that information. So right now we're figuring out all the logistics and we'll make sure we can like, you know, get everybody in like the good hotels and the good restaurants and then book the good activities. So we're pulling all that together. We had a whole conversation about my dream list and how to to make it happen for a group. Traveling as a solo person versus traveling with, you know, a group of people is much different. But we're going to make it happen. We're going to work it out. I told you I've been up to something. People are like, you've been quiet lately. Uh Uh-huh. I have been because I'm working on some shit. What else do I have in my notes today? Oh, we didn't do good black news at the top of the episode. And I specifically wanted to mention two big things. Aisha Hines, actress Aisha Hines. She's a sweetheart. I met her at um, Essence Black Women in Hollywood a few years ago. 
she was on Underground at the time. She's currently on Reno 911. She's been on that for a few years. So she's making network check. But at the time, she was doing Underground. And if you remember Underground, it was Misha Green's show. I don't know if it was her first show. It was Misha Green's really big show. That's when I learned who she was. Misha Green, who did um, Lovecraft Country. Before that, she had a show called Underground that was about some enslaved black folks on a plantation. A bunch of them ran away and then like a bunch of them stayed. And Aisha played Harriet Tubman on the show. There was one particular episode that if you've never seen, it's one of the best episodes of TV ever. But Aisha Hines playing Harriet Tubman sat in front of a room and gave a monologue about Harriet Tubman's life for about an hour. And it was amazing, riveting television. And that's when I looked her up on Instagram and was like, who is this woman? Amazing actress. She also dresses her ass off and stunts. She's one of my favorite Instagram followers. You know, I always talk about like Margie Harvey or like Margie will give us a moment. And then like the hotelier in, um, in Ghana, we talk about him. The one that has like the baby tigers and like the amazing Instagram. We talked about him, right? Freedom Jacob Caesar. We talked about what JC means too. The, the Christ-like figures. He's one of those. I'll tell you another day about his baby tiger incident. It's, he has these baby tigers that he takes pictures with all the time. I thought they were stuffed. There's been an incident with the tigers. It's been resolved. That's neither here nor there. He has an amazing Instagram. Like he gives you Zamunda. He gives you Idi Amin. He loves to dress up like a dictator. It's lots of theatrics. And he'd be like Louis Gucci Dior down. It's a fabulous watch. I put Aisha's Instagram on that level. Madame just got married to the love of her life. They got married in Grenada recently. The level of fashion. Andre Leon Talley would have been so proud. Ma'am, her husband, and all of their friends have stunted upon us. Like, it is, ah, it's fabulous. Remember Solange's wedding pics? It was Solange and Mama Tina and Cousin Angie and uh, Sister Kelly. Everybody all standing in formation and everybody was like, oh my God, this is nuts. This is crazy. It's unbelievable. It's so God. We all went crazy. It's like that kind of shit. I don't, I don't think I want to get married again. I just want to have really dope photos in the event. I just need to write another book or get this show sold. Maybe I'll do it for like the four year anniversary of this podcast. I was like, I just need an event. I just want to get all dressed up and stunt real hard. But ma'am does have an event. She has a life celebration. Congratulations to, to her and her husband on their, on their marriage, not their wedding, on their marriage. The wedding is a day or a weekend in some people's cases. That means you, Aisha. But the marriage is for life. So congratulations to them. Last but not least, <laughs> I got a call from my dad yesterday. <laughs> He's so funny. He was telling me about all this tea, all this DCT about people half his age. And I was like, how you know all this? Old black man, how do you know all this tea? And he was like, you know, people be talking. I be listening. Sir, sir. He was talking about um, Simone Sanders. Simone is a friend. So uh, so when I was living in D.C., <laughs> actually might have started before I moved. My dad, he's like the community dad. Everybody in D.C., political circles, black political circles, knows my dad. And I'm known not as, you know, Demetria, the, you know, 50 million professional things that I do. I'm known as Larry's daughter. 
and my friends, we've never had a conversation about this, but everyone started doing it. They treat my dad like where's Waldo. Any of my friends in D.C., when they run into my father, they'll take a selfie and then text it to me. It's been this ongoing game for like four or five years. Simone ran into my dad. She's taking selfies with my dad and sent them to me. So my dad is like, you know, Simone is my friend. He's like, our friend Simone. She was like, she got a new show. You've been been watching Simone on on NBC? She's on MSNBC. But but Simone, but Simone, Simone Sanders. Um, We were first introduced to her as the spokesperson for Bernie Sanders. And then she moved on to the Biden campaign. And then she was working in the Biden White House. I think she was working under Kamala Harris. She was also, you know, on CNN for a while. So, you know, everybody got to know Simone. But Simone left the White House, I guess earlier this year or late last year. And now she has her own show on MSNBC. I think it's been out for a couple of weeks. I told you I don't watch news. I don't watch CNN. I don't watch NBC. So it's nothing personal. Why I haven't seen the show. I just prefer to read my news or listen to my news. So I haven't seen the show yet, but I'm going to have to make a point to because, you know, Simone is on it. I listened to a podcast interview that she did the other day. I can't remember who it was with, but it was really good. She has great opinions. I like the way that she thinks. But her talk show is called Simone. Her debut episode, she interviewed First Lady Jill Biden. But she's very, very clear that her show will not be used as pro-Biden propaganda. I'm reading here. She did an interview for The Hill. She said, quote, I'm not here to be a spokesperson for the Biden administration. I had that job already. (laughs) Talk your shit, Simone. (laughs) She goes on to say, she says, I'm going to be honest. And sometimes the honesty means that what I have to say is not what the administration would have to say. And that's fine. Because it's my show. Her words, emphasis mine. Um, But she says that her show, it comes on Saturday and Sunday at 4 p.m. She says it's going to cover a variety of topics from Congress to pop culture and stories, quote, beyond the beltway. She describes it as we're going to do today's headlines, but we're going to go deeper. We're going to get into the weeds. So congratulations to Simone on her new show. She's going to make me turn on the TV and watch her on MSNBC, but I'm happy to support. So that is our backwards version of this episode. Thank you for listening. Again, if you haven't picked up your Ratchet and Respectable merch or you have and you want some more, it's up to 50% off on DemetriaLLucas.com. I would encourage you to go and grab your stuff sooner than later. Okay, we will talk again on Friday. I'll bring you up to speed on this big HBO event that's happening tomorrow. I'm about to go edit and go back to prepping. Okay, bye.